When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. At full disclosure here, dear listeners, we are recording this on Sunday morning before the Price of Football derby. So if any big financial news happens today, it's not going to be in the show. And I am such a big sulker if Palace lose that there may not even be a show on Thursday if that happens, Kieran. So let's... uh, well, let's hope that we win, Kieran, basically. <laughs> so, so you want me to uh, get, get hold of Graham Potter and say, for the benefit of the country's leading, mainly because it's the only uh, football finance podcast, please put out a Duff team today. Yeah, if you could do that, I'd be perfectly happy, yeah. Um, I got <laughs> I got involved, uh, Darren Ambrose, who you may recall scoring against you at your uh, brand new stadium, Yes. Was, a, was a guest on the five-year plan Palace pod the other day, and he was very good. He was very funny. He was very interesting. But we, we got involved in a, in a terribly childish semantic argument with him because he, he said, it's not a derby, it's a rivalry. And we went, no, it is a derby. He went, no, it's too far to be a derby. He said, well, it's not a local derby, but it's a derby because derby sounds better than rivalry. But And we, eventually, obviously, we had to get him to say that he hates Brighton live on air before we could move <laughs> on. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, it's Monday. Uh, it's not, Kieran. We just admitted that. But for the for the purposes of when this goes out, it's Monday, sort of. So that means it's it's our, it's our questions day, and I, I like questions day. We've got some really good questions. But first, a couple of news stories. Um, uh, possibly a, a last word for now on Project Big Picture, Kieran. Steve Parrish, who's chairman of Crystal Palace, revealed today in the Sunday Times that of the many issues he had with Project Big Picture. The loss of one club, one vote was the biggest. And also basically saying that if Leicester hadn't won the league in 2016, Project Big Picture may not have even existed. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm fully with Steve Parrish on this. And uh, uh, I, I just do not understand. You know, we've, we've grown up in a democracy and, and you know, surely one of the central tenets of being uh, part of a democracy is doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, you've got an equal say uh, when it comes to uh, power, you know, in the sense of one person, one vote. And, and for anybody to say that this is not good, mm. especially for people that don't even live in this country, to say, you know, we want the power. Um, and, yeah, Manchester United is a Cayman Islands registered company. Uh, you know, I, I just do not feel comfortable with that at all. Yeah. To, to say that these people have a have a better understanding um, and want more for the, the football fans than people who have been football fans all their life, it, it does seem to be a complete inconsistency. Um, yeah, and, and certainly in in respect of the the Leicester City issue, yeah, that's something we've effectively been banging on about mm. uh, that the the big six clubs in the Premier League have been trying to take a greater share of income. Because presently, if you take a look at the average income of the club in the big six, it's uh, it's around about three and a half to four times that 
of the the of the revenue of the other fourteen. And the argument being put forward by John Henry and Joel Glazer is that that imbalance isn't big enough. Mm. Uh, the EFL, Kieran, has rejected the Premier League's rescue package for League One and League Two clubs. And it does seem to me that the Premier League are adamant the Championship won't be getting any help, even if League One and League Two do. Yes. Um, the the offer that's been put forward, um, and, and I think the Premier League could have been a bit more generous here, I'm honest. Um, it's for £50 million, I think of which 20, was, 20 million was grants and 30 million was loans. Now, given that, yeah, we've discussed this before, uh, Fulham's uh, parachute payments of £34 million, which aren't going to be paid out now because Fulham got promoted straight back first season, mm. uh, you know, they, they, could have, they could have said, well, it's going to be yeah, 50 or £60 million, and we've had a change of thought. We're going to throw in two leagues, one and two, Fulham's uh, parachute payments as well. I think that would be, uh, be beneficial. There's, there's a huge argument taking place. Uh, the Premier League saying that there are no strings attached. The EFL are putting out that the, the Premier League wants control over fixtures and this, that and the other. Nobody knows what's true. Um, is that sufficient? I think it would certainly go a long way to addressing the, the issues of clubs in League One and Two because my understanding is that wages uh, in those two divisions are going to be lower than last season. Uh, I, I read a comment by Joey Barton, who's the manager of Fleetwood, to say mm. you know, their top owner is going to be on half as much. Um, but, but in terms of the championship, why should it be excluded? Well, I, I, my, my personal view is that clubs who are in receipt of parachute payments, they should be excluded from the bailout because they're already getting a large amount of money from the Premier League. Um, those clubs that sold their stadium to the owners, I think they should be excluded as well because if you've just received 60 or 70 or 80 million pounds from selling your stadium... It seems harsh to expect the likes of Palace and Burnley and Brighton to give you more money. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's – and also there seems to be inconsistencies because six months ago I, I, I wrote in one of the newspapers that I, I felt that the Premier League at the time um, should, uh, should, should be helping out. And I, I, got, I, I got put in my place by Rick Parry who says he was completely opposed to it because – but he's, he's opposed to the begging bowl culture. Well, if the, if the, the EFL is now saying it wants more money, I, 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 I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the, in, in the box, but if, if he's opposed to a begging bowl culture, why is he asking for more money from the Premier League? Yeah, I, I feel on a bound to point out, Kieran, that you are the sharpest tool in this two-person toolbox, <laughs> uh, if that's any consolation to you. Yeah, and, and let's not get into your personal relationship with Rick Perry. The one thing I, I, I've not been able to, to work out with this this fifty million pound, if, if if the Premier League were to give fifty million pound to Rick Parry, just as a uh, yeah, so it's, it won't be going in his pocket, obviously. But would would that be money for the EFL to dispose of as they wish, or would it be right? Here's fifty million pound. We want that equally distributed among the League One, League Two clubs. Well. It- the Premier League's perfectly entitled to say this is the money and this is the conditions. So, so it is clear, and I know Steve Parrish has, has said he's he's not comfortable um, about money going to to clubs in the Championship because if we are honest, we've got a league of six at the top of the Premier League, and then we've probably got ten clubs at the bottom of the Premier League who are in direct competition with you know 
14, perhaps 16 clubs in the championship. Many, many of the owners in the championship are far wealthier than owners in, uh, in the Premier League. So you, you, can, you can see why there's, there's a sense of unease. Mm. Um, the, the present distribution, and I think the present level of parachute payments isn't right you know, when I crunch my numbers, but uh, I think we need adult discussions. And, and what we're getting today, if you've read any of the newspapers, it, is it's all getting very personal. Yeah. Uh, in Italy, Kieran, Serie A has voted in favour of investment from two private equity firms, um, which is interesting because, as we discussed in the last pod, the EFL has done the opposite and turned down investment from a private equity firm. Yes. Um, and private equity investment in sport is becoming far more common. It, it now exists in Formula One. It exists in the Aviva Premiership, as far as rugby is concerned. The Six Nations have just signed up for it. And, and what's happened in um, in Saria is that private equity firms, I mean, they, they represent wealthy individuals. Um, and they went in with, uh, with a first offer from a company called CBC, which I think is also the company involved in the Six Nations. For a, it, it offered to buy 20% for 2.2 billion euros, which valued... Serie A at 11 billion. Um, it was a bit of horse trading taking place. It's very like Dragon's Den, this. Um, and the current offer is 10% for 1.6 billion euros, which, which values the Serie A at 16 billion. Um, and, and that's because you know, a bidding war took place. There's two, two American companies, Bain and CVC. Um, this has been voted on by clubs. You know, clubs were given. Uh, the opportunity to make that decision themselves, whereas the clubs in the EFL weren't even told that an offer was was on 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 the cards. Yeah. So, um, is is this a way forward? It's uh, it's it's the opportunity for for football to get immediate cash. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. We we know that. Um, and um, the, the 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 private equity companies would then get ten percent of future broadcast revenues. And they'd be involved in the, the commercial deals as well. Now, you know, th- these private equity companies, some of the stuff they do isn't great at times, historically. But I think they are trying to clean up their act. And it's in their interests for Syria to be successful. Because if you're getting 10% of broadcasting and a slice of the commercial, then you want 10 you know, the bigger the pie, the bigger your 10%. So uh, it's, it's, it's a way of getting third-party uh, income into football. Commercial banks don't want to touch football clubs right. because of the risks involved. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, you have to rely on private people, whether that comes from the owners themselves or a group of private people in the form of a PE firm. Uh, it, it's an alternative method of investment. Now, Kieran, we here at uh, Price of Football Towers are, of course, instinctively behind every football club supporters' trust that I increasingly like the cut of Newcastle United Supporters Trust's jib. Um, uh, we've come across them before. I'd, I'd like to actually, I'd, I'm going to get ask Guy to invite one of them to come and chat to us because they've been very vocal uh, and very passionate, as you'd, as you'd imagine, that Newcastle United Supporters Trust has demanded that the club stops taking money from locked-out fans. And it does seem that of all the Premier League chairmen, Mike Ashley is the one most reluctant to engage with fans around financial issues at the moment. I agree uh, entirely. Um, The the position with regards to Newcastle is um, 
yeah, they're, they're a passionate bunch, as we know. We've both been there as away fans, and it's, it's a great, great city to, to visit uh, on match day as well. Many Newcastle fans have signed up on long-term deals, so the club has had money for some time. Yeah. The club has said it's going to refund monies, which are due because matches didn't take place at the end of last season. Clearly, fans have missed out already this season. But trying to pin the club down as to an actual date when these refunds are going to be made is uh, is proving to be impossible. Uh, the, the Newcastle United uh, Fans Trust uh, estimates that the club has around about £7 million of their money sitting in the bank account right. at present, um, which is making them pretty irate. Um, and then, of course, we come to the issue of pay-per-view. Now, New- Newcastle was one of the matches that was chosen for pay-per-view uh, this weekend. So uh, fans have already paid for their season ticket. They don't know when they're going to get a refund and they're expected to pay £14.95 on top. You know, yeah. as, as we discussed before, yeah. that is is unfair. Um, to be, when we look at other clubs in the Premier League, a lot of them have got their, their, their app together um, and, and they are accelerating the refunds and saying to fans, it's your money, it's your cho- choice. I think the other thing which makes me really proud to be a football fan is that what Newcastle United are saying is um, don't spend the £14.95 uh, on the football match. Yeah. If you can, give it to your local food bank. And, and I think that's an absolutely uh, superb approach to take. Uh, you know, we if, if we've got the money, you know, it, it's, it's always a personal choice. Some people need the money for themselves. Um we don't know what's happening to these £14.95 because the Premier League clubs themselves haven't agreed. Haven't agreed on what? What on, happens on what to the money? Do, on, on what happens to the money. Now, is that going to be shared between the home club and the away club? Is it all going to the home club? Is it going to be put into the pot which goes into the support package for the um, uh, for the clubs in League 1 and 2? Uh, my, my understanding that, that no decision has yet been made. Um, and, and if people think that uh, this this pay-per-view is going to be lucrative, I've got to be honest, I've, I've crunched the numbers into a spreadsheet. And, and frankly, at, at this price point, um, you know, for a match where you a club would normally anticipate a million pounds of, of match day revenue, if, yeah, that would be the likes of Brighton or Palace when we're yeah. playing at home, um, you're probably looking to get 100 grand. So it's you're getting around about 10% um, of the of, of the usual revenue because some of it goes in VAT. You've got to go and pay extra money to the, the broadcasters, and we've got to be honest. Um, you know, if uh, you know, if, you, if you're if you're a fan of a club and you've got two or three of your family, where you're only going to pay once instead of three or four times, uh, you might have a few neighbours around because they'll support Palace as well. If that match was on, clearly we wouldn't go and breach the rule of six, of course. Um, but uh, you know, the, the idea for a, a club that would normally get twenty five thousand people turning up, mm. twenty five thousand uh, of these passes will be sold is a nonsense. Does does that lack of agreement on where the money will be distributed imply that this was a decision made and taken or made and taken very quickly? Yes, my my understanding, uh, and I've uh, I've had a few conversations with with journalists on this is that the uh, the decision was announced on a Friday afternoon, in fact, you know, a week ago on Friday afternoon. Yeah. The, uh, the proposal was first put to uh, Premier League uh, chairman 
um, on the Thursday night. So they had, you know, sort of, you know, effectively, like everything these days, it comes into your WhatsApp group, you check up on the email, and then they had a few hours to either have, have the decision as to, do we go with 1495? And again, there's an argument broken out between the broadcasters and the Premier League. The Premier League are saying, Premier League clubs are saying the price was determined by the, the broadcasters. The broadcasters are saying it's nothing to do with us. My understanding, and, and I'm not a lawyer, well, I'm a lawyer, the same as you, is the clubs weren't in the position to dictate a 1495 price for, for all the matches because that would have been in breach of competition law. And so therefore it would have to be down to the broadcasters. Um, but they, they, they had a choice of £14.95 or a blackout. Um, we, we, put a, we put a poll out on Twitter yesterday to see what the reaction of fans was. And personally, I'd have thought, that, you know, I, I, would, I would have personally voted for the 1495 because it's, it's not my decision as to how people spend their money. Yeah. But it was overwhelming in, in rejection of a blackout. Uh, from fans, I think it was seventy four percent to twenty six. Right. Um, it, it's interesting. It's probably my imagination, but watching the game yesterday, um, I can't which game it was. The first one that was on yesterday after Saturday afternoon, the the, the Sky commentators seemed almost um, sheepish in announcing that there are games available, or BT Sports commentators rather, were almost sheepish in announcing that you could pay fourteen pound ninety five to watch these extra games, but. Uh, then listening to BBC Five Live later on, they were basically really enjoying the fact that you could listen to this for free. And it's like, just, you don't need pictures; just listen to the radio for nothing. And um, on, on, on the back, just to finish on the Newcastle United thing, I really would like to talk to somebody from that Newcastle United Supporters Trust because it seems to me that of all the clubs in the Premier League, Newcastle's owners are the ones that rely on the unwavering blind loyalty of their fans. They just seem to assume that they can push their fans as far as they want because there are enough Newcastle fans to shell out money and not complain about it. And I think they're increasingly finding that they've made a mistake in assuming that, haven't they? Yeah, but the fact that uh, Newcastle United had to give away half-season tickets uh, last season before the pandemic broke because it was embarrassing. So many Newcastle fans have now voted with their feet and not renewed, um, that it was looking, it was just looking a bit embarrassing yeah. from the club's point of view, that there were huge swathes of uh, of empty seats at the ground. I, mean, I, I went to a match, I think it was in September last year. Uh, it was a 5.30 kickoff on a Saturday, and I, and I was staggered. Uh, yeah. But you know, fair play to Newcastle fans, because it must break their heart, yeah. not, not yeah, having to make this decision to not, to not support the or not support Mike Ashley's Newcastle United. They still support Newcastle United. They don't support Mike Ashley's Newcastle United. That's yeah, the issue. That's a good distinction, yes. Okay, Kieran, it's question time. Uh, our first question is, and I'm actually looking forward to saying this name, Kieran. Our first question comes from Tom Buzz, which which is a great name. I like to think Tom Buzz has only just started calling himself that after trying out Manscaped's new razor. <laughs> um <laughs> 20% discount if you use the code price of football. What a, what a team we make. Um, it, Derby fans will be disappointed. They've had a couple of weeks off, but we're, we're back on Derby because Tom is a Derby fan. Uh, and Tom says, with Derby getting a £30 million loan recently, what can they actually do with it and how will it affect FFP? He says a lot of Derby fans are overjoyed with this, but I'm not alone in being concerned that they've put the loan against club assets. Um, is there any way of knowing, Tom Buzz says, what assets they've put against the loan. 
Um, yes. And um, so, so what's happened here is, is that Derby um, in August, um, they took out a loan from a company called uh, something like MK Holdings or MS, MSD Holdings, which is uh, part owned by Michael Dell, the, the computer uh, magnet of Dell Computer Fame. Mm. Um, at the time, it said that there was security against this loan, um, and that loan, that security included the stadium. Now, the stadium isn't actually owned by Derby County, as we know. Uh, it is owned by another company owned by Mel Morris, the, the club owner, who, who has himself put huge sums of money into the club. Um, now, on, I think it was Friday, uh, another document appeared at Company's House, and as you know, every single uh, football club document that goes to company's house also mysteriously appears in my inbox um, <laughs> and um now the training ground um has uh, is now being used as security so I'm, I'm i'm getting a bit confused here because uh the the, the football ground is uh was, was valued at 80 million pounds so if it's only a 30 million pound loan why why do you need to take out extra security on it unless it's an additional loan so we mm. so we don't know whether it's an extra loan or whether it's extra security um so we've not been told the amount of the loan we've not been told the interest rate although um i i saw um again mysterious mis- mysterious things ping into my inboxes these days kevin so, so, said. I, so i've heard yeah <laughs> Um, and, and for a similar loan, uh, I, I can't tell you who the lender was, the, the rate of interest was 9.5%, plus there was a 1.5% um, organisation fee. So you're effectively paying 11% on uh, loans from lenders, you know, whether that, you know, I, I hope you've got Derby, you've got a better deal than that, but you, you never know. Um, so what, what, could the, what could the money be used for? Now here, I, I know... Some Derby fans can be excited. I'm hoping it's being used for for good reasons. Um, it could be used for season ticket refunds because, uh, as you know, Derby get very good support. Yeah. Uh, their match day income last season was was nine million pounds, of which a, a substantial chunk of that would have been season tickets. Um, if, if we take a look at Derby, what what we have seen in recent years is uh, yeah, the money could just simply use paying the wage bill. The, the average wage for a Derby County player went, according to my calculations, from £7,800 a week in 2014 to £22,500 a week in 2018. Now, I don't think they're getting treble, treble the standard of football for treble the money, so I think there's an element of frustration there. When it comes to FFP, I've got to say it's, it's, it's irrelevant. Right. Uh, so it doesn't count towards FFP at all. Um, I suspect it's going towards wages because if you take a look at Derby's accounts um, – pre-pandemic they were paying 161 pounds in wages for every 100 pounds that came through the door Mm. Uh, tom buzz i hope that answers your question feel free to ask any question you want tom because i will happily read out the name tom buzz several times a pod um and another name i'm happy to read about uh, read out is dave baccarini Uh, and dave baccarini is a regular question asker to the pod thank you dave uh, and this is a good question because I don't think we've mentioned this since around episode three a year ago. And Dave says, it, it seems we know in great detail what players get paid, but we know less about managers. So in the Premier League, are managers the highest paid employees? Pep versus Sterling at Man City, for example. And what about the championship? 
And and this is an interesting point. How come managers can just resign and leave, but players can't? Okay, let's take a look at those questions in turn. Ultimately, none of us know how much players away are paid. Yeah, okay. it's, it's pure conjecture. It's not. It's not disclosed publicly. It's not like the NFL. I mean, the, the NFL is absolutely fantastic in terms of transparency. Now, my personal view is actually it's none of my business. You know, it's I, I don't know what what your earnings are, Kevin. You don't know what mine mine are. If anybody wants to find out what a grade six teacher is paid, you you can find out uh, if, if you if you go to you know the government is is uh, does give out that data. I, I think. Um, but you know, it, it's a private matter. But it, but these things, uh, you know, it, it's a classic case. As Goebbels used to say, if, if you tell a story enough, people believe it to be the the honest truth. Yeah. So, so we have got a rough idea what players are paid. But you know, it, it, you know, those figures are calculated to you on Derby. It's it, it's an average based on a based based on a model, you know, algorithms and stuff. What what you tend to find in most businesses is people in senior management tend to be paid more than people in middle management who tend to be paid more than people on the shop floor. I think football is different because football is a talent business. Um, and and you, know, you, you work in show business and, and you know that some performers will be paid more than some theatre owners because they are deemed to be the talent. Um, but football is unusual because sometimes the manager is seen as being the talent. So in the case of Pep Guardiola... I, I did some Googling. They, they estimate he's paid around about £15 million a year, which is broadly the same as the estimates for Raheem Sterling. Right. So, that, so that's – but it does very much vary from club to club. And I think if you have some clubs who have either new managers, especially if they've been promoted from being the coach or something of that, they could be on a substantial discount to the highest paid players at the club. So that's that's the first question answered in respect of uh, managers moving on the reason why it's more difficult for a player to move than a manager is that when you sign a player on a five-year contract um, that gives you exclusive rights to play that player for the next five years so you are playing you're, you're paying for his registration and if if somebody wants to employ that player they've got to give you compensation in the form of what we refer to as a transfer fee. So that that's why it, it tends to be easier for, for players to move on. Having said that, we are now seeing quite a few uh, managers um, themselves have clauses built into their contract. So if you're a manager, you sign a three-year contract, what it will say is that if you are approached um, by another club, um, to take over, then there is a release fee in your contract. So looking at it from a personal point of view, uh, Graham Potter uh, was, was the manager of Swansea. I think he was one year into a three-year contract. Uh, our, uh, our our club, Brighton, approached Swansea, and Swansea says, well, we're willing to, to, for this to go ahead, but you've got to pay the release clause. And, and that release clause can run into seven figures. It tends to be much lower than you would see for a football player, um, simply because if you take a look at uh, clubs in the EFL, for example, the average uh, the average lifespan, the average tenure of a football manager in the EFL is three hundred and seventy four days. So yeah, they're, they're they're lasting just over a year each. 
So giving compensation doesn't actually tend to work because you lose three matches and and the pitchforks already, aren't they? Yeah. I'm happy to be transparent about my earnings, Kieran, about 10% of what they were in February. Um, Our next question is from Alan Day. And, of course, Alan Day asks a good question. Uh, With a salary cap being imposed... (laughs) With the salary cap being imposed upon EFL 1 and 2, will clubs just look to loan deals from clubs in the Premier League and Championships? Um, Would that be a cheaper alternative? And presumably the parent club will pay part of the salary as a way around the cap then, wouldn't they? Yes, they would. Um, Are you you certain that Alan's not one of your cousins from Ireland? Because, yeah, I'm I'm related to probably at least 20% of of that country. So it it could be one of your long-lost... Uh, people. I couldn't know the, 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 the days of my um, English cousins. It's, the ah. McLo- it's McLaughlin in Ireland. I mean, there are O days in Ireland, but uh, there aren't any Allens in the family at all. So I suspect if I was related to Allen, uh, it would be through the English side because there's a lot of days in Cambridgeshire. So if Allen's from. Ca- this is getting this is all very local TV <laughs> now, isn't it? Just answer the question. About okay. <laughs> League, League One and League Two, as we know, have uh, gone for uh, salary caps or squad salary caps, 2.5 million and 1.5 million, uh, respectively. Um, it would be very attractive for them to now take on loan players from higher up. And remember, one of the, uh, one of the items con- contained within Project Big Picture was to allow Premier League clubs to have... Uh, up to four players on loan um, at a single club. Uh, so th- this isn't quite the B teams that were being put forward by, by yeah. Manchester City, uh, but it does seem that we, are we sort of creating incubator clubs uh, in, in the lower leagues for to effectively to, to give uh, young players normally in, in the Premier League an opportunity to uh, sort of give themselves a more testing experience because... Uh, what, what we have in, in terms of the under-23 competitions at present it is not really representative of what you'd expect in, at first-team level. Hmm. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Um, Mike Goldberg is an Arsenal exile in Chicago. Uh, Mike asks, could the dismantling of Arsenal's European scouting scarf, scarf, uh, they probably have a scarf, but they're scouting staff, could that have anything to do with laws post-Brexit, i.e. if it's difficult to attract young, young European talent to the UK, why bother scouting them in the first place? And if only established expensive players are easily imported from Europe, doesn't this favour the wealthy clubs? Um, let's again, let's take a look at this, unravel these two questions. In terms of the redundancies, um, my gut reaction is, having looked at this uh, in a bit of depth, 
is that Arsenal, Arsenal's owners, now Arsenal are owned by Stan Kroenke. Um, his son is effectively now sort of the, the person who's, who's in control. Um, uh, it looks as if Arsenal want to move more towards the type of recruitment and scouting model that we've seen at clubs such as Liverpool, Manchester City, Leicester and so on, which is very much data driven. As such, the traditional scouting approach um, has itself, as far as Arsenal are concerned, has, has had its day. Right. So I suspect that those redundancies would have taken place regardless of anything else. Um, so to, to, to try to connect it to Brexit, my gut reaction is not the case. Okay. In terms of the second question, um, this, this is something we, we have discussed on, on the show before. Mm. Um, Brexit will certainly favour the bigger clubs because under the proposals which have been laid down by the government, um, it's going to be on a, on a tariff basis. Um, and therefore, it's going to be similar to the way that we recruit players who are non-EU, and that's linked to their existing salary, uh, their salary uh, they would be offered here uh, in the Premier League, uh, the country which they, they which they come from, and where that country's FIFA ranking is, and this is actually really crucial. Uh, you know, if, if you're in the top 50 FIFA ranking countries, that actually is significantly beneficial, which seems strange, really, because uh, you know, we, we at Brighton, we, we've got a player called Percy Tao, uh, who we can't get a, 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 a work permit for because, he, because South Africa, who were on, on, on the cusp of going into the world top 50, didn't. Um, so we're now loaning him out to a club in Belgium. So it all gets very messy. Um, but certainly the, the Brexit regulations will favour those clubs who are more inclined to be recruiting players from Argentina, Brazil, Germany, mm. Italy, Spain and so on. The Premier League needs more purses, doesn't it? <laughs> There's a distinct lack of purses in the Premier League. Now, we, we, we spoke about Newcastle fans in the news and now we've got a question from a Newcastle fan, uh, Adam Morris. And Adam makes a really good point, and it's one that uh, one of my West Ham supporting friends will angrily endorse, because it's about the name United. Adam says he's increasingly infuriated that uh, the Red team in Manchester believe they own the right to this name, reinforced by the media referring to them as simply United. Given Liverpool's recent attempts to trademark Liverpool, could Manchester United try and do the same with United? Um, they, well, they they can try, but they get absolutely nowhere with this because of the existence of Newcastle United, Sheffield United, Leeds United, Scunthorpe United, mm. Southend United. So, so that that element of exclusivity um, would not apply. They 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 get thrown out immediately. I mean, certainly, if, if we look at some of the things which have taken place under the Glazer ownership, and and, and I've got some Manchester United. Uh, friends, because uh, as, as people may or may not know, I, I, I played for, for Trafford Cricket Club for 30 years. Mm. Um, in terms of this constant reference to the club as United, uh, I, I heard a, an interview with uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer uh, uh, overnight following their, their, their match at Newcastle United, um, and, and yet he was referring to the club as United. And, and, and I can understand uh, other fans uh, getting irky about this. It's not an issue, of course, that you have at Palace. 
No, indeed. Uh, I'd be furious if somebody else came along, started calling himself, well, South End Palace. That sounds like a musical, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, I'm, guess, I'm guessing you're a sneaky little off-spinner. Were you a sneaky little off-spinner? No, no, no. I was uh, opening bowler, uh, left arm. Really? Drift it in, drift it in, nip it away. I bet you were a chirper, though, wouldn't you? I bet you appealed for everything, I can guess. Now, I'm, I'm far too polite. <laughs> in fact, what, my big... We played in a cup final once, the South Lancashire Cup final. Um, and this was many, many years ago. Uh, second over, they, they had a decent opening batsman. I, I dropped one short, caught him square between the eyes. So absolutely knocked the guy out. And my team were going cock-a-hoop. I was in tears. Oh. You know, I, I'm not an aggressive person, you know, but uh, he, he was. Uh, he, he took a bit of a hammering from that. Uh, and, uh, no, I'm, 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 I was... I was my problem was I have no aggression. I'm a lover, not a fighter, as you may, <laughs> as you may have gathered, and I can get confirmation of that. <laughs> I once uh, for a TV show, I once faced Malcolm Marshall in the nets. Uh, I, I'm not. I, would, I wouldn't recommend that again. No. I, did, I heard the ball go past me. I didn't see it. <laughs> um, our next question comes from Maximilian Boutte. Uh, and Maximilian, if your name is actually Maximilian and Guy left out the I by mistake, I apologise. But uh, just for now, you're Maximilian Boutte. Uh, how did the Champions League being played out in Lisbon affect the finances of Benfica and Sporting, whose stadia were used for those quarterfinals, semifinals and final? Did they make a big profit? Uh, they would have made a little bit of money, but, but not much. Uh, UEFA were looking for a city which had two significant football grounds. Um, so, so Lisbon, therefore, qualified on that basis. Um, and also they were looking for a city which, from a geographic perspective, was easy to access by plane. So people could come in and once they were knocked out of the competition, they could get out quite easily. Um, unfortunately, neither of those clubs would have made a huge sum of money because normally you, you can charge a fair hosting fee but as UEFA are selling tickets for the matches, you know, they more than they recoup that. Um, but uh, in, in this case, it was it was actually quite a, a, a generous offer made by the clubs that they, they they covered their costs, didn't make much more money. It's a it's a brilliant city, Lisbon. I heartily recommend it. When all this is over, I'm going to treat myself to a weekend in Lisbon. That's what I've been. That's, that's the light at the end of my tunnel. Sitting back at Sellers Park on a weekend in Lisbon. Sean Hubbard has a question you'll like, Kieran, because it's about insurance. Uh, so I'm going to go off and make a cup of tea while you answer this. Um, okay. It's a simple one, and again, it's one of those issues we sort of in the first few episodes of this pod we 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 covered some general areas but without any real specifics and this was one of them so i'm happy to revisit it sean says when a player has a career ending injury what do they get paid and does the club receive any money and do the club and player have separate policies right um so i've looked at this one in depth you might have to uh leave leave the tea bag in for some time on this one kevin whoa um, hang on a second i'm just oh, checking oh. that for euphemism okay <laughs> Right. Carry on. Uh, oh no, no, no tea bagging references yeah. for me. <laughs> guy, um, guy won't know what that means. It's fine. We're okay. Carry on. <laughs> um, the, the way that it works is as follows: um, most clubs are covered by the Premier League overarching uh, policy when it comes to insurance. Um, my understanding is that it's it's hardly worth having. I, th- I think the pay. I think you, they'll get a sort of money back of somewhere between. 250 and 500k in respect to a player. So, so there, there is a Premier League policy. 
clubs themselves can also take out insurance policies, um, and that will normally pay a, a proportion of the contract. Um, but the, the premiums are pretty high. Yeah. When it comes to the players, uh, again, there is personal insurance that they can take out. But if we took a look at a pre- take a look at the premiums, if a player is looking for, say, a six million pound payout, um, you know, yeah, well, we can all get personal insurance uh, policies, which we pay, you know, yeah, a hundred, couple of hundred quid for. Um, the, the premiums are are high. If, if you're a twenty two year old player, uh, it's going to cost you thirty grand a year. Uh, for the insurance premium. Um, if you are a 32-year-old player, so therefore you know, you've probably had a few knocks, yeah. um, it's probably going to cost you 70 grand for that uh, premium. Um, and, and then, of course, the small print uh, needs to be checked. Is is that just a UK or is that worldwide cover? You think about travel insurance. Yeah. And if you ever go to the US, you have to double the amount of premium. So, so it, it is costly. Um, and, and the reason why it's costly is, is that you know quite a few players end up having their careers finished at an early stage, and uh, you know the, the insurance companies need to ensure that they, they don't lose money on the basis of that. So there, there are, in answer to Sean's question, there's a variety. There's the Premier League. There's the clubs. Many clubs effectively self-insure because if you think about it, if you've got a squad of twenty-five players, and it's going to cost you on average fifty thousand uh, pounds a year. Uh, to to insure each player, but then you're looking at premiums in excess of a million pounds mm. for for a player, yeah, and and, you, and it could be that your squad is, is no, nobody has a career ending injury for five, ten years, or whatever. Um, and in if, if we take a look at the finances of clubs at present, they are all looking to cut back on expenses uh, wherever they can. And presumably, Kieran, these policies only relate to injuries that happen while playing football or training. Because if you remember last Christmas, Mikel Antonio uh, had a prang in his very, very expensive sports car whilst dressed as a snowman. Uh, and, and we discussed at the time, as a friend and I, that I, I can't imagine the insurance company would be particularly happy about a player dressed as a snowman getting into a very, very expensive sports car. And again, I, I, I guess they're banned from skiing, parachuting, motorcycling, that sort of thing as well, aren't they, under their insurance policies? I, I think, actually, they're, they're banned from that under their employment contracts. Oh, okay. oh right. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, in, in terms of things like this, this would be specifically in relation to their day jobs. Right. So yeah. and anything which took place outside the realms of training or um, playing football is, is unlikely to be covered um, and, and they'd have to take out separate insurance policies, things of that nature. Right. So if any Premier League player is listening to this, wondering why their insurance policy now has a no dressing as a snowman thing. <laughs> yeah, OK. Um, our next question, we need to crack on because we've still got a couple of questions to come, and they're good questions. Todd Davis is in L.A., uh, and if he hadn't said that, I think I might have guessed that Todd Davis was in L.A. just from the name because that's a good name, isn't it? Um Todd says, in the US, we only hear about players' wages discussed in annual terms, i.e. $10 million per year, for instance. But in world football, wages are discussed in weekly terms. Are footballers literally paid weekly during their contract? Now, Todd, pay attention because there's a little bit of working class history coming up here, I guess. <laughs> there is. And it's great to get an, uh, an inquiry from LA. LA is, is one of my favourite songs by The Fall, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, I was not expecting that, but yeah. 
But uh, the reason why footballers' wages are quoted weekly here in England is due to the fact that when football uh, first turned professional, the players were being recruited from the factories where players uh, where, where, where individuals were paid by, in, by the week, and initially footballers themselves were paid weekly. Now, as things have changed, you know, since the the eighteen seventies when football first started professionally, or eighteen sixties, um, then players are now physically paid on a monthly basis. But if you take a look at sports such as cricket and rugby here in England, and also if you talk, we were talking earlier about um, Raheem Sterling and Pep Guardiola. Pep, Pep Guardiola is paid £15 million a year. Mm. Raheem Sterling is paid £285,000 a week if yeah. you read the newspapers. Yeah. This is all to do with just reminding ourselves that footballers are from a working class background. They need to know their place. Mm. And because it's not a white collar industry as, as perceived by so many parties, um, that this is just, it, it's, it's, it's a slightly insidious way of trying to infer that uh, footballers are in some way inferior mm. to other people um, because of, of the way that we uh, describe their, their wages. Um, so it, it's, it's a historical anomaly uh, and it's part of uh, class culture here in the UK and reinforcing that class culture as well. Uh, that would look good written down because the word inferior has the word infer in it. So that would be a good piece of writing, Kieran. Well done. Callum McFadden has a question for us. Now, Callum is a friend of the show and host of the excellent CFP football podcast. In fact, I shall be a guest on his pod uh, this week where I shall be discussing my book, Who Are You? 92 Football Clubs and Why You Shouldn't Support Them, freely available in shops and online now. Uh, that's my equivalent, Kieran, of you having your book on display every time I see you on the bloody telly. Which well, I'm still waiting, still waiting for your, your I, book. I, I know, and I'm still waiting to see you being interviewed without having a massive copy of your book behind you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, sales of that Brighton tube map must be going through the roof as well. Um, Callum says, we hear a lot about the finances of clubs, but are leagues made to publish their accounts publicly? If so, I'd love to know more about the SPFL accounts. And uh, as with no title sponsor and a lack of overseas broadcasting partners, I'd be interested to know the state of play. Now, uh, the CFP Football Podcast focuses a lot on Scottish football. So for Callum, this is an important question. OK, I, I did in fact send Callum a set of our Price of Football Top Trumps cards this week. because He's been in contact with me as well. Um, uh, all companies are obliged to publish their accounts. So if you go to Company's House and... Uh, I, I have a, I have a, effectively a, a reminder system. So for all 92 English clubs, all 44, is it 46, 42 uh, Scottish clubs and the EFL, SPFL, uh, Football Association, Premier League, I get the lot. Um, it must sound like the, your house must sound like the BBC Radiophonic workshop. It, 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 must, it can't be of 30... I know that's an obscure reference. It's the Doctor Who theme tune, if you'd like to know. But there, there can't be 15 seconds passing in your house without something pinging or another. You yeah, probably, I, I, do, you, do you miss the microwave? Because you just think, oh, I've had a message on the <laughs> phone. Oh, so it's burning. Yeah, it, it's, it's become a bit extreme. I now get around about uh, 1,200 emails a week on <laughs> football finance. Okay. Uh, and, and the poor old Baroness, uh, you know, there, there'll be me in bed sort of rummaging through them and... Uh, She's being she's being abandoned. 
Um, I'm saying, oh God, you this? I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm saying nothing. The word rummage is going to stay <laughs> uninvestigated. Carry on. Um, in, in respect of the SPFL, um, the, the role of the SPFL is to is to work effectively as a collection agency on behalf of the club. So the uh, Neil Doncaster, who's, who's been a guest on the show, yeah. he and his team, they are responsible for negotiating TV deals, for negotiating with sponsors and things of that nature. They collect that money in. They then subtract um, the, the admin costs, and the rest is distributed to football clubs themselves within Scotland. Now, um, last year in 2019, the amount collected was slightly down. This was actually more due to the fact that there were uh, less money coming in from UEFA solidarity payments. Uh, Overall costs, I think, was was slightly up due to that to write off some bad debts. Mm. But even so, the admin costs added together were around about £2.4 out of £36 million that the SPFL generated. To give you um, some context with regards to that, the Premier League's uh, central and admin costs, instead of £2.4 million at the SPFL, were £280 million. Holy mother. Wow. Is that, I mean, is that a similar proportion, though, percentage-wise? Um, it prob- probably is, yeah, because the... Uh, yeah, the, the Premier League TV deal is is worth you know around about three billion pounds a year. So yeah, yeah. okay. Um, okay, uh, Callum, I hope that answers your question. Uh, when you send a thank you note for your top trumps to Kieran, you can ask him more in detail. Um, our penultimate question, and I'll see you next week, Callum. By the way, um, Ben Clark has asked our penultimate question. Usually in pre-season, says Ben, Leeds United play a few local games against teams like Tadcaster and Guiseley. Uh, this obviously helps them financially, of course, because of Leeds' big away support. Do many other Premier League teams do the same? And should the FA encourage them to do so, to raise money for grassroots football? It's a good question, Kieran, because Palace used to play teams like Bromley and Whiteleaf a lot, but it seems less so now that we're an established Premier League club, in inverted commas. Um, it, it does It does very much vary, uh, Kevin, on, on, the, on a club-by-club basis. I know here at Brighton we, we normally... We'll have a match against Worthing or something of that nature. Uh, it'll be sort of, you know, every player gets a 45-minute run out. Uh, we might play Crawley. Uh, We've we got to be honest here. We're, we're not Manchester United. We're not Liverpool. Uh, we're, we're not hugely in demand, uh, either our clubs in, in Asia or America and so on. Manchester United uh, tend to do this less and less, and I have no issue with this whatsoever because they've got people clamouring to see them overseas. Of course, yes, of course. Um, so they were due to make this summer to make due to make sixteen million pounds wow. from their pre-season tour. To put that in context, that's more than than Palace made, and, and practically the same as what we made from a full season of match day income uh, in the Premier League. Yeah. So, so these are very lucrative. Um, another issue uh, I don't want to hark back to to project big picture was that uh, one of the reasons why. Manchester United and Liverpool owners wanted to reduce the size of the Premier League was to allow them to go on more or more lucrative pre-season yeah. tours um, because sort of to have this sort of the, the equivalent of the Harlem Globetrotters in football, which, which pre-season tours are, yeah, the players don't take them that seriously. It is just a glorified training exercise, uh, is, is very beneficial 
from a financial perspective. And also it allows the club to to tie up those local commercial deals as well. So therefore, you know, if, if you are Liverpool and, and you're in uh, you know, you're in Malaysia, then then all of a sudden your local noodle partner, a couple of players can take 10 minutes out for a quick photo shoot. So there, there's ways of tying up not just what we see in, in terms of the, the figures which the, the clubs will quote to local promoters to host the matches, but it's also beneficial from a commercial perspective as well. Um, for Palace, Brighton, I mean, Leeds have got bigger support than both our clubs. We both know that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, they, they will tend to do things on a more local level. So if Leeds are still in the Premier League in five years' time, Ben could probably expect them to be playing Tadcaster and Geisley on far fewer occasions, unless you, maybe a Leeds eleven might be going down there, because Leeds will have the sort of demand that sees them touring the Far East, presumably. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and certainly if you take a look at... Uh, uh, Leeds owner Radrizani, you know, he has got ambitions for the club. 10% of the club is now owned by the San Francisco 49ers. He's seeking further investment. You know, that could again come from private equity. Uh, he's certainly got ambitions for Leeds United. Philip Hawkins has a very interesting question for us to end on. Uh, and Philip is one after my own heart because it's about retro shirt merchandise. Philip says, with the growth of retro shirt sales through official club stores as well as through specialist dealers, are clubs receiving any significant revenue from their old shirt designs? And at what point do manufacturers stop honouring their percentage of sale commitment to a club once a deal has expired? This is a fascinating area, Kieran, and one which I think concerns current kit sponsors, I understand, because increasingly, I'm told, you have older fans buying the vintage kits for nostalgia reasons, but you've also got younger ones buying them because they don't have to wear the logo. Uh, yes, uh, there, there's a bit of a, a conflict at times because if you, you know, I think if we're honest, we've probably both got more than one Palace and Brighton shirt between us. I haven't got, uh, any, I've got, I haven't got any Brighton shirts, Kieran. Let's, <laughs> we have to be very careful how we put these things here, Kieran, because we're okay, both yeah, getting... I, Yes, I haven't got any Brighton shirts. I, and I've not got any Palace shirts. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. my windows are clean enough without having to get any Brighton shirts on the queue. Don't worry. <laughs> um, clearly, the the current deal with the current manufacturer is one that the club wants to promote, as does the manufacturer, because they will have made money. Uh, the, the club benefits from uh, getting the uh, the percentage, and, and also when, when they're going forwards to sign up a new year deal with you know, Puma or Adidas or Nike or Macron, whoever it's going to be, um, it's going to be on the basis of, of, of sales of the present level of sales of shirts. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Quite often, because clubs have a habit of changing their badges, then they might lose the the intellectual rights to the old badge, which means that that uh, manufacturers or, or uh, opportunity, no, no, I'd, I'd say uh, companies that have got an eye for a, a, a market will mm. potentially go with a, an old style badge uh, and sell them. So it makes sense for the clubs, therefore, to put the retro shirts it, it, it sort of in house. Um, it does make some money for the club. It's it's pretty marginal. Um, and in terms of the the percentage, um, given that. You know, 99% of Palace's sales will be from Palace's uh, megastore or Palace, you know, Palace's online store. It, it makes sense from the manufacturer's point of view to carry on paying, paying the club a commission for each sale because the manufacturer will benefit from that as well. Okay, Philip, I hope that answers your question. And if you have 
any questions for us on any aspect of football finance, or whether it's your club or your country or your continent or your planet, uh, questions at priceoffootball.com is what you need. Questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday, uh, as long as Palace haven't got hammered, of course, in which case it might be, <laughs> it might be next Monday. It might not. It might be Christmas. You never know. Uh, and I'll leave, I'll leave Kieran for, to his, his final word. Uh, and I won't be saying good luck afterwards either, Kieran. So. <laughs> Uh, once again, folks, thank you for the feedback. Thank you for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you do like the show um, and you could kindly give us uh, five stars and the review, it doesn't actually matter what you say in the review. Uh, we, we've now had it confirmed that uh, you, you can say rude things about myself and Kevin as much as you want. Um, you know, by all means, say, if only we had the Swiss Ramble and Justin Morehouse doing the show, I, I'd, be, I'd prefer it far more. But makes no difference to, to where we are in, in the charts. And we're appearing in some really weird charts. We, the show has now been watched in 157 different countries, um, which, uh, which, given that it's two old blokes talking from Norbury and the South Coast, is, is a bit bizarre. Yeah, um, and, and given that it's a podcast, I'm amazed they're watching it at all. True. <laughs> um, but uh, keep, keep them coming. Uh, keep the questions uh, coming as well. Um, and... You know, we're living in, in difficult and troubled times, so look after yourselves. Phone people who you've not spoken to for a while. Let's keep in touch with each other. Let's be let's be good. Let's be as, try to be as good as Newcastle United supporters trust and their food bank commitments and things of that nature. And above all, look after yourselves, and we will see and speak to you soon. Possibly. football. <laughs> <laughs>